BroadwayCon, the podcast listeners, Patrick here. So we are now just a little over two weeks away from BroadwayCon 2017, and I'm so excited, you guys. A few pieces of news. So we've just announced a 25% student discount for weekend and day passes to BroadwayCon. To access the discount, go to broadwaycon.com, click the ticket link, and at checkout, use the discount code BCSTUDENT. You'll need to present a valid student ID at check-in. We've also just announced a Dear Evan Hansen panel, which will be taking place on Sunday at 11 a.m. on the main stage. If you're looking for me at BroadwayCon, I'll be doing a live episode of this podcast on Friday at 1 p.m. It will be a panel of some of my favorite Broadway social media stars like Annoying Actor Friend, Tyler Mount, Broadway Girl NYC, Playbill's Felicia Fitzpatrick, and the gals from the Hamill cast. I'm hosting an LGBT panel on Saturday featuring Jay Armstrong Johnson, Beth Malone, Andrew Keenan-Bolger, Nathan Lee Graham, and Robin DeJesus. I'll be at the autograph and picture table on Saturday at 3. And on Sunday at 11, I'm hosting a live taping of Theater People Podcast 100th episode with favorite guests Celia Keenan-Bolger, Daisy Egan, Kayla Settle, Andrew Keenan-Bolger, and a few surprise guests. You can find information, schedules, and tickets at broadwaycon.com. Okay, now to the show. I know a place where you belong. Come follow me and join the song. Welcome to BroadwayCon! The podcast, the show for the theater kid in all of us. I'm your host, Patrick Hines. One of the things I've loved about talking to the people we've had on this podcast is learning that everybody has their own journey into the Broadway community. One of my favorite people in the Broadway community, someone I've gotten to work closely with over the last few years of making Broadway-themed podcasts, is publicist Lisa Goldberg. She began her journey towards the Broadway community as a dancer, but then life happened and she changed her course. I'm so excited to share her story and her passion for theater and really for people with you today. In the second part of the show, we'll chat with Tony nominee and current Hamilton star Rory O'Malley about how he was able to fuse his passions for acting and politics into creating relevant and really important theater. Okay, here we go. Hi, Lisa Goldberg. Hi, Patrick. To start start the story that you were just telling me again. So you are a pub you're a publicist for TV, film, and Broadway. But you were saying how like you got your start as a dancer. Will you will you will you start over? Sure. Yeah, I grew up a very serious dancer. Always wanted to be a you know on Broadway. Um, I was serious into ballet, where I would go away every summer to study with ballet companies, with Washington Ballet and Aglovsky Ballet, and people at SAB and. Um, then went to college on a dance scholarship and a vocal minor. Um, and that was my whole goal. And uh, what we were just talking about was uh, our mutual friend, Daisy Egan. Hey, girl. <laughs> but I grew, when I was growing up, like I would tape, now I'm aging myself, I would, <laughs> I would tape all the Tony Awards. And so, um, one, because I worshipped it, and two, because um, I wanted to know who every actor was, every director, every producer who was nominated, who won, what they were involved with, so that when I got to New York, if I ran into one of them on the street, I could immediately go up to them, know who they were, quote their Tony speech, know everything about them, and hopefully that would lead to a job. And the funny thing is, is that a couple of months after I got up to New York, I did run into Barry Weisler on the street <laughs> and went up to him and started talking to him, and I got an audition out of it. No way! Yeah, and that was before I had an agent. Wow. So what was your trajectory with your... So you moved to New York to be a dancer, right? 
Yeah. Well, yes. I was more to, well to be on Broadway. Uh-huh. I'm, I mean, I was a decent singer, but dancing was my thing. Um. So yeah. I mean, I studied with like Annie Ryan King and that whole wow. group. Yeah. With like very, I was very fossy. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that was my goal. So I moved up here and I started working and did national tours and regional theater and all that kind of stuff for a number of years. I was pretty lucky. And um, then um, I got sick for a while and I couldn't dance anymore. So when I became well again, I just like didn't feel like starting all over where, you know, I mean, you know, at that point, like your agent's kind of forgotten about you, you know. That can happen in a weekend. <laughs> well, this is true. I hear that complaint from my clients all the time. <laughs> like on a bathroom break, like at intermission. <laughs> right, totally. Between first act and second act, suddenly you never hear from them again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just decided instead of starting all over again, and physically I don't think I could um, dance the same way that I could before, I reinvented. And so um, – yeah. But I mean, it seems like being a publicist is something that like Aaron Spelling shows are made of. Like you have to know, like it seems like you have to like have, how did you know how to do that? And first explain what it is and then talk about like how you just knew how to do it. Um. Okay. Explain what it is. I guess like anytime you see anyone in the news or media in any kind of form, whether it's online article or, or a podcast with you or someone else or um, a talk show, or anything like that, there's a publicist behind that that is is pitching them. I think back in old Hollywood, they would call it um, a publicity agent. So rarely is there like a booker that's like, I want to book so-and-so, and I'm just going to cold call and see if they'll come to my show. It's it always it's almost always you or somebody like you who gets the, the exposure for the client. Yes, but at the same time, a booker will call the publicist and be like, hey, you know, uh, Matthew McConaughey has a movie coming out. We want to book him before, mm-hmm. you know, it depends on what level you're at. Whereas if you're the person who's actively pitching the client versus saying yes or no to the pitches coming in from the bookers. But that being said, like, If you're a big enough deal, you know, your sister could probably get you on the cover of Vogue. If Anna wants you on the cover of Vogue, she's going to call you. (laughs) So, you know, it's catch 22. How did you decide, like when you were pivoting to your new career, how, why was this the right choice and how did you know where to start? Totally fell into it. Um, Had had moved home for a couple of years when I was sick, came back to New York and just looked for a job immediately to pay the bills while I figured out what I wanted to do, which was a friend of a friend who owned a restaurant. And I walked in to get a job thinking that I would just wait tables because um, I could sell the hell out of some bottled water. <laughs> <laughs> that is a skill. I worked in restaurants for years. Let me just tell you, I won every bottle water contest. If you need, I mean, you know, people want tap water. You're going to upsell. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, so a friend of a friend had a restaurant. I went in to get a job and... Um, uh, honestly, I think he just wanted to sleep with me, which didn't happen. <laughs> but we turned out to just be really good friends. And he uh, hired me to kind of manage and do in-house PR, which I had no experience doing. Um, but I was always a really good schmoozer on my own behalf. 
So it kind of made sense that I could then get paid to schmooze for other people. And I mean, honestly, I completely self-taught. I started reaching out to every publicist, every publicist assistant, every booker, every TV show. I reached out to things like Saturday Night Live to see where they were doing their parties. And I started booking Saturday Night Live parties at the restaurant. And then, like, I met Martha Plimpton at a Saturday Night Live party. Hi, girl. I love, oh, God, I love that woman so much. Me too. And then, like, Martha became one of my first clients at the time you know so it was that kind of thing and then it spiraled from there and that was what was the restaurant um it was called sapa it was on west 24th between fifth and sixth still there just different name i think yeah um that's amazing so when did how did you transition out of restaurants into like doing pr for like television film and broadway full-time Pretty relatively quickly. I mean, I was doing so I was doing Sapa's uh, PR and then within a couple of months, a second restaurant approached me. And so I started doing their PR. And then the owner of the first restaurant was like, you know, if you want to branch out, like as long as you take care of us, I, you know, I don't really care. He was so great. And I mean, he had me keep an office there for years. It was just he was fantastic to me. But it was a publicist in L.A., um, George Clooney's publicist, Stan, who, honestly, I was just hawking him to death to get Clooney into the restaurant. (laughs) That happened. That's how that. So it's not just getting on talk shows. It's like when celebrities go to restaurants, it's through a publicist. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I was trying to book like we would book. I would book movie premiere parties and, um, uh, you know, we book out the restaurant for like a couple days at a time for a movie to shoot there and those kinds of things. So I can't remember what movie Clooney had coming out at the time, but I was bugging Stan to death. And I think at one point he was like, okay, okay, I get it. Stop emailing me. But I like you. (laughs) (laughs) That's like how I get jobs, too. (laughs) And next time you're in L.A., let's have lunch. So I almost immediately booked a trip to L.A., (laughs) flew out there, had lunch with Stan. And I mean, honestly, like I credit him for getting me started because he was the one that was like, you know, you know what you're doing. You're very good at your job. You need to start your own firm. And here's how you do it. Wow. And so how did you start to acquire clients and who were they? Um, I'd chase after them. I still do. I yeah. mean, I'll, I'll still, you know, if I find people that I like, I try and catch them early and I will, I will chase after them, their agents, their managers. Um, I mean, now I'm lucky in that there's a lot more word of mouth, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. Um, hopefully good. Um, but yeah, I, I, w- I would actively go after them. Why are you interested in Broadway? Uh, I mean, you know, it was my background. I grew up loving Broadway. I, I, I did shows for forever. I mean, I still love it. I feel like um, I work well with theater clients and that I understand what they're going through. I mean, especially with like, you know, quote unquote tech week and, mm-hmm. you know, shit like that. Like, I know when they need to be on vocal rest or we need to do an interview over email or we need to take a break or I mean, I get the whole thing and I love it and I love being a part of it. And it's fun also with some of the clients, like um, some of my choreography clients who you know, also like know my dance background and will come have me see one of their shows way early in rehearsal or a preview period. And like, we'll sit down and have notes together, which is awesome for me because it's just fun to kind of be a part of it still because mm-hmm. every once in a while I'll miss it. Yeah. <laughs> what What do you do for somebody? So like some of your current clients are like Michael Park. What do you do? Like right now, Dear Evan Hansen is super hot. So what, like, are you seizing every opportunity for him? And, and like, what is the... When you sign somebody like him, do you sit down and like, what's the process? 
Hmm. Um, the process is different with every client because I try and tailor it to their personality and their interest as well as what project they're working on. Um, you know, it depends on if they're very involved. Like, you know, if you're involved in a show that, for instance, I don't know, has to do with um, cancer for some reason. I, mean, I don't know why I'm making that up, but, <laughs> you know. But you had a personal experience with breast cancer. Then I'm going to reach out to breast cancer charities and we're going to try and work together with them and do some kind of combination. Like I like to go different routes and not just the theater press, which the theater press is the bread and butter. And I love every one of you guys, but I also want to make it personal to each of them as what's important to them. Um, you know, with Michael, um, we just talk shit over football, so that that's about it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Side note, you're like Facebook is like equal parts theater and like sports, and I'm like, what? There's a game on because Lisa's posted a lot today. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm a little out of control. It's it's mainly just college football and Florida State. Um, but yeah, it's every once in a while, my mom's like, okay, that one was crossing a line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, I wouldn't even know. I don't even speak that language enough to know what that would even look like. So I want to talk like Tony season. Okay. So, so let's say like, can you talk about like when your clients are nominated for Tony awards, what is your job in like the month leading up to that, the Tony's and then like on the day of the Tony's? Um, it's nonstop. It's six weeks, which is uh, the longest period, I think, in any award season. The Emmys, Oscars, Globes, none, none of that is, you know, you have like a two week voting period on a lot of these things. Um, six weeks for Tony. So it's a long period of time. There are a lot of parties. You're pitching constantly. You're getting them dressed. Um, you know, obviously the Tony dress itself for the girls is extremely important to them. Do you help them find their dress? I do. Yeah, I do. Do you usually get it donated or do they have to pay for it? No, no one pays for it. No. Really? Yeah. Well, you usually borrow it. I mean, and that's kind of across the board for, uh, you know, all award shows. You have to give it back. Wait, let me ask you about this because Kayla Settle was saying that like one year she was praying to Jesus that she didn't get nominated because she couldn't afford it. That like getting nominated for the Tony Awards just is so expensive. What? How do? You, why? Why is it like that? And then what? Do you are you able to help mitigate that at all? Um. Well, now you're getting into a completely different area, which goes back to I think a Melissa McCarthy story that she told about the Oscars. Tell me. Well, she told the stories about that she couldn't, she couldn't get dressed. She oh. couldn't find somebody to dress. Now, because, you know. Because of her size? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So in general, you know, you have to, men and women, um, in, able to borrow from a designer most of the time, not all of the time. Most of the time, you need to be able to fit into a sample size, which they're tiny. Yeah. You know, they're tiny for regular humans. Like I hope I can never get nominated because that's never happening. <laughs> we'll find you it sucks <laughs> I mean honestly it's almost harder for men because they have to be sample size of those male runway models that are like you know a buck 30 soaking wet oh and God. I mean yeah. come on yeah. like no no man looks like that I'm yeah. just slightly above that yeah me too <laughs> So in that manner, you know, if, if I mean, you can be a size six and have a really hard time getting a dress. I mean, that's an unfair side of it. That being said, things are changing and there are lots of designers that, 
you know, are willing to dress anyone and they will custom make a gown. And I've had lots of custom gowns made for people. And I work with um, some wonderful designers like oh, e even here in New York, Thea is fantastic. And Don, their designer, will custom make gowns for people. I mean, it's just, you know, you just got to get in with nice people, I yeah. think. What happens on – so, like, you're potentially – okay, we're not – I mean, I just do this to people to freak them out. We're potentially looking at, like, a really big year for you with your clients because you have a lot of talented clients that are in big shows this year. What do you do on a Tony Day if you have, like, three clients or five clients that are nominated? Okay, first of all, don't jinx me. I do it to – you should have seen Renee Elise Goldsberry's face when I was like, so what are you going to wear to the Tonys this year? This is, like, months before the no, – and her face just went – like, she did not know how to answer it. Like, she was like, I will not answer that question. <laughs> I love Renee. Oh, my God. Well, I've been fortunate enough to have multiple nominees, um, multiple years. Um, but I have people that freelance and work with me that are fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I've had them, they've worked for me, with me, I'd rather say. They work with me for a number of years. And, um, you know, they cover clients. So we divide it out. Um, the way I usually choose who I'm walking down the carpet is whoever's been with me the longest uh -huh. and I feel like that just kind of keeps it fair you know unless they're a total asshole then I don't want to be with them <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding <laughs> looking at you park um <laughs> <laughs> we're looking at you park poor Michael um is there anything that you do you steer their conversations at all Actually, let's tell this story. Do you remember the one of the first clients you booked with me for for my podcast? Do you remember? Do you know what I'm talking about? Vaguely, I'm I'm guessing by the look of your face, I spoke up in the middle of the interview. No, no. What happened was we booked Mark Kudish. Kudish. Do you remember what happened? No. So we booked Mark Kudish, and we went to see the play, and. My oh, best yes. friend Mike and I were – my best friend and my producer Mike and I took um, – we objected to some – we object, We we had a really hard time with a part of it. And what happened was because I booked him through you, I didn't know you very well at the time, but I didn't have any direct way of getting in touch with him. I knew that we couldn't have we, – we couldn't in good conscience do the interview without bringing up this thing that we had a problem with, but we didn't think it was fair to him because – he wasn't on stage when it happened. He wasn't in it. He didn't write the play. He didn't direct it. And so we canceled the interview. Naively and inappropriately, we canceled the interview. And I and and do you remember like do you encounter situations like that? And what like what was your what was your side of that? And 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 then when we finally did the interview, you sat in on it. <laughs> do you remember that situation? I do now that you said it. Yeah, I remember it. Um, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, that was surprising, but I. But Mark and I both understood where you were coming from, which also, if I remember correctly, Mark immediately reached out to you personally. Yeah. And that was terrifying because this was before, this was early before I was used to getting like emails from people like him. And he was so, so nice. But he was like, I don't care about being on your podcast. Let's have lunch and talk about this. Yeah. And that's really who he is. I mean, he, he didn't care about coming on the podcast after the fact. It was more, he wasn't trying to talk you into it. He wanted to have a conversation about why that bothered you in the play and a discussion about that because that was kind of the point of the play yeah. um so yeah I remember it very vividly but that doesn't no I don't I don't have that kind of thing happen often I mean on occasion when I'm singing an interview every once in a while something has gone awry where I I've had to shut something down um wow. 
but not often. And I will say that all of my kids, you know, I call them my kids. I mean, all my kids are so well behaved and so lovely. And um, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not getting calls at 2 a.m. that people are in jail. So it makes it a lot easier for interviews. <laughs> when you start to get confused because of thoughts in your head, don't feel those feelings. Hold them in instead. Turn it off like a light switch. Just go click. It's a cool In 2008, Rory O'Malley was living in New York City. He had just wrapped up what had ultimately been five years of work on Gary Marshall's Happy Days the Musical on the West Coast and also at Goodspeed and Paper Mill Playhouse. An avid politics junkie, he decided to take the summer and go home to Cincinnati to volunteer for then-Senator Barack Obama's first presidential bid. This decision led him down a very exciting path. He told me about it recently, and the story really blew me away. So I'm really excited to share it with you here. In 2008, after five years of working on it, I have been always very interested in politics and I moved home to Cleveland afterwards for the summer and just started showing up to Barack Obama headquarters um, and started volunteering for him. Wow. And showing, you know, knocking on doors in Cleveland. This was um, for his first presidential run. Yes, in 2008. And uh, running phone banks. And I, like, was head of security at rallies. Not security. <laughs> that would have been bad. Head of security? Well, like, I was in charge. I remember Bruce Springsteen, who clearly I love, was uh, did a concert in downtown Cleveland in the last week. And I was in, there were two lines to go through security. I was in charge of one line. And my friend Jenny Canellos, who came and who joined me in Cleveland uh, from New York, she was in charge of the other line. There were 20,000 people there. So I was in charge of 10,000 people and she was in charge of 10,000 like, people. Were you going through their bags? I was running up and down just trying to keep them in line to go through the real security. But I was oh. literally running blocks. Like these weren't like, I wasn't like just for, I was forming the line that was circling, snaking down, you know, to uh, Tower City, which Clevelanders will know. All It was, it was f from the lake all the way to Tower City, which if you're from Cleveland, you'll know <laughs> that. That's pretty long. Um, so... It was crazy. I was a part of, um, uh, I, I had to drive around in Joe Biden's entourage. I was a driver. They would have to just do like crazy random things. The Obama campaign like needed to staff up. They, like, well, where, where were there, where this, was everybody? This is how it works. Yeah. Like people don't realize Super that like over the entire country, people just show up to offices, volunteer, and you just start you just do random things. Wow. And I had just finished a job after five years and was like ready to dive in and, and learn. And I met a lot of great people. And then on election night, I was in Cleveland. He won and Prop 8 was passed overturning yeah, we have to talk about that marriage too. in California. And that's when I thought, oh no, did I do the wrong thing? Like, should I have been in California fighting for marriage equality? And when I got back to New York, there were rallies at City Hall and there were all of Every rally I went to, there were just a ton of Broadway folks. And Gavin Creel, who's also from Ohio and who I know, who I knew through friends, but really was not that close with, and my friend Jenny and I, we said we really want to be serious about getting the Broadway community involved in the fight for marriage equality. And I took all the skills that I learned from the Broadway, uh, from Barack Obama's campaign in organizing, and we started an organization called Broadway Impact, and we just started a letter writing campaign, showing people writing letters to state our state senators 
to demand marriage equality in New York. And it grew into having a rally of in on Sixth Avenue. We shut down Sixth Avenue and had the cast of hair there, Cynthia Nixon, Audra McDonald, and then so many people said they wanted to come on Facebook that the mayor's office called and asked if he could speak. And then the governor's office called and asked if he could Whoa. speak. So it was literally these these people who had no we had no idea what we were doing and all of a that sudden we're hosting incredible. the governor. Yeah. And then uh we did the National Equality March in Washington DC. A lot of people from Broadway couldn't come because they had shows. So Sutton Foster uh Got, got money for a bus. And so all these different shows started putting together money for buses so people could go for free. And we had the largest showing in Washington, D.C. for the National Equality March. And then we needed a new project. And so I started looking into different TED Talks and just kind of come up with an idea. And Eve Ensler, who wrote the Vagina Monologues, did a TED Talk about writing the vagina monologues, doing a benefit, and then all of a sudden they were performed all over the country and in different colleges, raising money and awareness for women's issues. And I thought, oh my God, that's what we need to do. We need to have a play. Because we can get a lot of uh, theater folks all across the country involved, but it's hard to say, like, here's a list of bullet points of things you can do. But if we hand them a script, they know exactly what to do with yeah. that. They invite people to see it. and it's the, And so... At the same time, the the case to overturn Prop 8 um, being argued by Ted Olson and David Boys out right. in, in San Francisco was happening, and they weren't allowing cameras into the courtroom. And the, those two lawyers were on opposite sides of the fence for the recount for yes. uh, George Bush and Al Gore, Al Gore, right? Correct. But they teamed up to try yes. to make marriage equality happen in California. Yes. It was... An amazing story just in itself. Yeah. Like it, we, it was so intriguing to me to have Ted Olson, one of the most conservative uh, lawyers who was always up for the Supreme Court for any, you know, like for, for Bush or, or conservative presidents, that he was fighting so ferociously for marriage equality. And I thought this is a turning point kind of thing. And so we flew ourselves out to San Francisco Um I, I waited outside the courtroom at like 4 a.m. to get into the courtroom, and I was in the courtroom in San Francisco for the final arguments for— You're blowing my mind. You're uh, blowing my mind. This is incredible. Yeah. No, it was it, one of the greatest moments of I'm my sorry life. that I interrupted. Keep, keep, keep no, yeah, left yeah. Off. No, it was, it was amazing. But, of course, AFER is the foundation that Chad Griffin started, and he's now the head of Human Rights Campaign, and Dustin Lance Black was, was on the board, Rob Reiner. And so we— presented this idea that I had to say we should take the transcripts from these tri this trial that was not put on camera because this is the case this is the conservative case for marriage equality and bring it to the rest of America and they loved the idea and of course they're you know have a lot of star power so Dustin Lance Black asked if he could be the one to put the script together you know, and I fell out of my chair. I was like, "Yes, of course." Justin Lance Black is the the Academy screenwriter, screenwriter. Of yes, Milk. Milk. Yes. I was wondering what that title was. But yes. It's milk. Yeah. And so, it just was a perfect moment of of things really coming together. How and did you stay involved with it? So, uh, Jenny Canellos, the executive director of Broadway Impact, our organization, she was, uh, she basically put together with Afer. A night at the Eugene O'Neill Theater, actually where Mormon was at the time, and it was you know myself, John Lithgow, um, Morgan Freeman. It was all these huge 
celebrities and performed this this script of the transcripts from the trial, which ended up being mostly the final arguments that I was there for live. Wow. Um, and we performed it, and then our idea was take it to other theaters all across the country and then have talkbacks afterwards so people can learn why this is so important and why this is um, a right that already exists and then find out what they can do in their local community and in their state to make marriage equality a reality. Did that happen? It happened. We performed it in over uh, 500 different theaters in all 50 states, seven different countries. It's been translated into different languages and is now being used in different countries. We did it in Los Angeles with George Clooney and Brad Pitt. And How do you get to the? I mean, I guess Dustin Lance Black just yeah. texted them. No, it was. It, this is the thing is that when we presented it to AFER, we were like, you know, we could maybe get together 300 people and do an event, and then, you know, we could do it in 12 different theaters across the country. And they were like, okay, well, what if we get Brad Pitt and George Clooney and we get um, YouTube to live stream it? So everyone in the country can watch it live, and it's on. You can go on YouTube now and see it. It lives and exists with George Clooney, Brad Pitt. If you go to eightheplay.com, um, our our website, you can see all the different theaters that it's been done at. And so that was, you know, over the last four years, and there will be nothing I ever do that I'll be more proud of than working on that project because I really believe that the theaters and the people that it reached in different communities all across the country that's the reason that we that we have um a movement not just because of that but because of things like that people having the conversations in theaters and in communities all across the country not just you know in new york or la i am africa i am africa with the strength of the cheetah my native voice will ring. BroadwayCon, the podcast, is a partnership between BroadwayCon Media and Theatre Podcast Productions. Episodes are produced, mixed, and edited by me, Patrick Hines. Just a reminder that tickets for BroadwayCon 2017 are still available. You can find information and tickets at broadwaycon.com. We'll be back next week. Until then, we ask you to remember this. If you get really pissed and will cut someone slack When they call the cast album a freaking soundtrack You're